All right, so 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, uh, 1 to 13. Now about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods or many idols, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and from whom we live and for whom we live and there is but one lord jesus christ through him all things came and through him we we live but not everyone possesses this knowledge some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god and since their conscience is weak it is defiled but food does not bring us near to God. Uh, we are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. Well, um, I'm glad to be with you tonight. This is epic. Um, getting to dig into God's Word, how cool is that? Let me just find my spot, 1 Corinthians. Open up all my things and shake them the right way. Alright, um, I'm ready. <laughs> I, um, I, didn't grow, uh, I didn't grow up on the Central Coast, right? I grew up in the Blue Mountains and I grew up on this property that uh, this river ran through it, Right? pretty cool it was this um this natural water river just flowed from the mountains it's not as good as the beach I know you guys have got it good I didn't know how good you've got it until I moved here but we had a river right and growing up I'd jump in this river all the time and um it would go through like deeper and shallower parts and you could um you could walk up it and swim up it and if you went up about a kilometer or so um you got to this sweet set of rock jumps and, like, the biggest rock, rock jump was probably, like, 12 or 13 metres, and uh, it was sick. <laughs> and the smallest one was, like, six, six metres or something. There was a range. You could, you could build up your confidence and jump off the biggest one. There was, like, this little um, hut on the very top, and you could climb up on top of the roof of the hut and jump off that, and you were even higher. Um, I knew this rock jump off the back of my hand. I knew where the shallow parts of the water were, and I knew where it was really deep, and because it's, it's, there's, um, there's mountains either side of the river, you'd get all these trees falling in the river. So I knew where all the submerged logs were. And I knew not to jump on those because you like break your shins if you do. And um, so I, I, I just knew it off the back of my hand. I could do it with my eyes closed, 
I could do backflips off it. Um, and I used to take my mates down there and show off. I used to show off how well I knew this rock jump and I'd just do crazy stuff off it. As one time, one of my mates came down with me and he'd never done this rock jump before, right? And he wasn't sure he could do it. But I was there, I was there egging him on. I was like, come on, man, you can do this. Just jump off. And I was calling him a chicken and stuff and he, was, he eventually built up the confidence to jump off this rock. When he finally jumped off the rock, he jumped into a shallow part of the water and he broke his back. Amazingly, even though his vertebrae had been broken, his spinal cord was just bruised, it was intact, and he recovered. (laughs) But if that story had gone any other way, I don't think I could stand up here and tell you that story because I would be racked by the grief of what I'd done to my mate, um, the pain that I brought into his life. If he couldn't walk again or worse, um, I, would, I would feel the guilt of that because it was my confidence, my egging him on, getting him to jump off the rock that had led him to do something that he thought he couldn't do. What I knew I could do had led him to do something that he knew he couldn't do. Now, we're going to look at something a bit like that tonight in the Bible, but on a bit of a, on a, bit of a spiritual level, not physical, but um, to do with conscience, causing people to act against their conscience. Um, and I think it's important for us to think about these things. And we're looking at Corinthians, and they're in a way different context to us, um, but there's principles at work that we can apply to us. Um, And I hope we can see that really clearly in our passage tonight. So why don't I pray, and uh, I'll pray as we go through this. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, um, how it speaks to us and helps us live rightly and live um, in a way that loves each other and glorifies you. I pray that as we come to it, we'll have open hearts, that are ready to hear and understand your word um, and take it to our hearts so that we can live in ways that are influenced and affected by um, the words that you speak to us through your scriptures. Uh, We we pray that um, you'd give me clarity as I um, uh, speak what's from your word. I pray that um, the words I say would be easy to understand and we um, bring all these things before you in your son's name. Amen. All right, so um, the first thing that we're going to see tonight, does this work? Yeah, is that love comes before knowledge. If you've got a pen and paper, make sure you write that down. That's my first point. Love comes before knowledge. Have a look in verse 1. Pick up your Bibles. Verse 1, it says, Now about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge. But knowledge puffs up, while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. 1 Corinthians, what the heck, what's going on? We're talking about love and knowledge in these first three verses, and it has something to do with food sacrificed to idols. Um, Let's get grounded with what's going on in 1 Corinthians quickly. 
1 Corinthians, obviously a letter written by Paul um, in the first chapters, 1 to 6. He's been doing his normal thing. He's been writing about the stuff that he wants to write about. He's been teaching them all these, these things. Um, we're past that. We've looked at that, I think, last year. And this year, we're looking at 1 Corinthians from chapter 7 onwards. And you heard last week from Dan, he, um, he went through chapter 7 with us. And in this section of Corinthians, we start hearing um, questions coming from the Corinthians. The Corinthians are asking questions and Paul's dealing with it like a list. So if you look back at verse 1 of chapter 7, um, he says, Now for matters you wrote about. So it's matters that they've wrote about, they've, wrote, they've written to him. And so Paul and the Corinthians are a bit like pen pals. They're writing to each other and Paul's answering the questions that they got, right? And so the first thing that he wrote about was marriage and Dan talked a little bit about marriage last week. And this week, we're talking about food sacrifice to idols. So you can see at the start of chapter 8, he's moved on to his next topic and it's concerning food sacrifice to idols. Now, we'll see a little bit later in, in the passage tonight as we work through it all, but there's, there's two groups of people in Corinth. There's one group of people and they've got an issue with food sacrifice to idols and there's another group of people who seem to not have any issue at all with food sacrifice idols, right? So that's where we're going. That's the context of Corinthians that we're looking at. Now, Paul, they're asking Paul what he thinks about the issue of food sacrifice idols. Now, I bet you have never, ever had to think about that issue before, right? You've never had to go to the Macca's checkout and you're like, wait, 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 before you give me that burger, uh, can you just tell me that meat patty has never, ever been involved in any ritual food sacrifice to idols? I'd think you're crazy, right? Because we don't have to deal with this issue anymore. But for the Corinthians, it was a big deal, right? Um, imagine a Voca market on the last Sunday of the, the month and you've got like hundreds and hundreds of tents set up everywhere and you've got like dresses being sold, like le- weird leather, colourful boots and um, dream catchers and all this kind of stuff. Well, in Corinth, it would have been like that except just meat, pretty much all meat. Um, because Corinth was a hive of thousands and thousands of different pagan gods. And you can imagine every god had these different sacrifices that you would have to do in order to please them or whatever. So you'd kill the animal and um, so you've got a dead animal on your hands. What do you do with all the meat? Do you chuck it out? Or you'd just have like piles of dead animal out the back of the temple. It would stink. No, they, they ate it. They ate all the meat. They'd have these huge temple feasts um, or they would sell it in the market. And so for the Corinthians, it's a big issue. They're, they're always having to deal with this issue of whether or not it's okay to eat food that's been sacrificed to an idol, especially as they're new Christians. They're thinking about all these issues freshly. So it would have been nearly impossible to get meat that had never been involved in some sort of sacrificial process. So Paul starts with this funny way of addressing this question. He starts by talking about love and knowledge, right? It seems indirect. In verse 1 he says, We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. So he's talking about this big distinction between love and knowledge. Knowledge can make you proud, right? It can make you feel bigger than what you are. It can make your head big. 
Whereas love, love's about building each other up, right? Love's about constructing each other, saying things that build each other up. And when we think of building, we think of construction, so we're thinking of making something that's more stable. That's what love does to each other. We're making each other more complete, more stable. So if love is other-focused, knowledge is self-focused. Knowledge is about puffing yourself up, whereas love is about building others up, right? Big distinction. And as Christians, we've got this perfect model of what love actually looks like. We've got a saviour who's loved us, who's given up his rights, his heavenly rights, and he's come down to earth to die for us, to save us. He's got an other-focused love. We can see in 1 John 4 verse 10 that this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Love's a big deal. It's one of Paul's biggest expectations of Christian living, right? So if you weren't with us um, in our Galatians series over fat, we got to Galatians 5 and it said, Serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbour as yourself. Wow, this is massive, right? Okay, So Paul has this big, big picture of what love is, and it's big and important to him. And it's not some sort of soppy, soft kind of love. It's a strong, robust love. It's sacrificial. It's about putting the interest of others before your own interests. It's about serving others. And I want to say this because I think it's easy to think that love is all about yourself, right? Um, It's about your happiness and whether you feel good. It's actually refreshing to... to remember that love is about others. It's about serving others. Because the pressure to always make yourself happy and feel good, it's suffocating and it's eventually destructive. It makes you uneasy and restless because you're worried and protective about the things that you think you'll lose. But if love is about building each other up, it can look great, right? Imagine if you chose to share your study notes with that friend who needs help, or better yet, if they ask for help, sitting down with them and sharing the knowledge that you have. Man, that's love that serves each other. And the Sportsman of the Year award never goes to that guy or girl who plays the game by himself. It goes to the person who's a team player who's looking for the pass that'll win the game. And it's fun to play with that kind of person. Love's about others serving each other not yourself. And we live in a society where it's pretty easy to put others down and make yourself look good. But the Bible wants us to live differently. And our lives should look different because of how unusual it is to love by serving other people. So that's the difference, right, between love and knowledge that Paul's starting out here in verses 1 to 3, okay? The Corinthians... They're taken up with the impressiveness of knowledge, not love. So Paul is taking this opportunity to say it's actually about love more so than knowledge. Have a look at verse 2. He says, Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. There's a problem with knowledge. 
We've already seen that it puffs you up. But there's another one. He says, if you think you know something, you don't. It's the pride in knowledge that makes you blind to the things that you don't know. And if you're claiming to be the expert on the things of God, you need a good old humbling. And you can find that in the scriptures. Check this out. In Isaiah 55 verse 8 and 9 it says, this is God speaking, he says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. We can't claim to be experts on the things of God. And Paul says there's something better than even claiming that or or knowing God. Have a look at the twist in verse 3. He says, But whoever loves God is known by God. That's weird. I was expecting something like, Whoever loves God is loved by God. Well, I was expecting something like whoever knows God is known by God. But it's saying something better. It's saying being known by God is better than knowing Him. Our knowledge of God can only scratch the surface of who God is, but His knowledge of us is deep and complete. He sees us as we truly are and He loves us. How is that possible, right? I thought that if God really knew me, He would look at the deep, inner, twisted, sinful person that I am at my core and reject me. But that's the gospel, right? When you love God and you're found in Jesus, God can look at you and see what is placed in you by grace. He can see forgiveness, justification, washed clean by the work of Jesus. Love, loving God, being found in Jesus is better than knowledge. So we're not to get preoccupied with just gaining all this knowledge. We're to be preoccupied with loving each other and loving God. Now, knowledge isn't bad. I don't want it to sound like I'm saying that. Knowledge is good, right? It's through knowledge of God that we can know God and know His love and be able to demonstrate it to each other. But knowledge without love will mean nothing and it will show how little knowledge you actually have of who God is. That's why Paul says those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. So yeah, read, read books, read your Bible, get knowledge, investigate the things of Jesus, go to Jesus Uncut and find out as much knowledge as you can about Jesus. Because that's finding knowledge about God, it will lead you to loving each other. It'll lead you to know that love comes first. So use your knowledge to serve and love each other. So this is only the start of what we're looking at tonight, okay? We're talking about love and knowledge. But we we still haven't got to this question of food sacrifice idols. That's where we started, right? Food sacrifice idols. But all we've been talking about is love and knowledge. So the next thing we're going to see, though, and this sort of goes to the heart of answering the question about food sacrifice idols, is that we don't trip up our friends. Don't trip up your mates with your knowledge. So that's my second point. Have a look at verse 4. 
In verse 4 it says, So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Just pause there with me. So this is the knowledge that the Corinthians have, right? And it's not bad knowledge, it's true, right? They know that there's only one God and that other gods can't exist. So whether or not food has been sacrificed to them doesn't matter, okay? It hasn't actually been sacrificed to a real God because that God doesn't really exist. It's all fake. But, but, have a look, verse 7. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a God. And since their conscience is weak, it's defiled. What's defiled? It's their conscience, right? Since their conscience is weak, it's defiled. Verse 8, But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. So you've got these two groups. One group's feeling fine about eating food, sacrifice to idols, and one group's not. Is it fine for one group to just continue eating food, sacrifice to idol? They've got knowledge that there's only one God and so it doesn't really matter. So shouldn't they just feel free to eat the food, right? Not quite. Have a look at verse 9. Keep going with me. We're nearly there. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. This is Paul's practical advice to the Corinthians of what it looks like to make sure that love comes before knowledge. Some Corinthians, they're convinced, they know that there's only one God, other gods don't really exist, so they feel free to eat the food. But other Corinthians, even though they believe in God, they still think that there's something funky going on with idols, Sacrifice and food that's been sacrificed to idols. And Paul's warning to the Corinthians, it's pretty straightforward, right? He's saying, don't do something if it's going to trip up your friends. Let's imagine, let's go back to Corinth. And uh, we've got two mates, they're Christian mates. We've got Didymus and Listeria, all right? I've found um, some two Corinthian names, that's what I came up with. Um, so Didymus... And Listeria, old mate Didymus, he's got some non-Christian mates and they say, hey dude, do you want to go over to the temple of Artemis and grab a bite to eat? And he's like, yeah, sure, it's like, sounds fine, Artemis is a fake god anyway and these guys need to know Jesus, so why not? 
But Listeria sees his mate Didymus go to the temple and Listeria's a new Christian, right? He's thinking, I think there's something wrong with eating food sacrifice to idols, but Didymus is just stepping right in there and eating it. But maybe I should go in too, even though he thinks there's something wrong with food sacrifice to idols. So he goes along with his mate and he eats the food that's been sacrificed to idols. His conscience tells him not to, but he does it anyway. Paul is saying, that's not good. You're wounding the weak conscience of your mate who still thinks it's wrong to eat foods even though um, it's been sacrificed to idols, the gods don't exist. It doesn't matter. His conscience tells him not to and he's done it with you anyway. Paul is saying, that's wrong. Now, this is the Corinthians, right? They're, They're dealing with food sacrificed to idols. We've got nothing like that. We don't have food sacrificed to idols. For us... It's a big difference. We live in a different context. But there's a principle at work there that's applied to the Corinthians. The principle is don't trip up your friends if it's going to cause them to sin, to stumble. And we can apply that principle into our lives, right? So for us, it's different. Imagine alcohol, for instance. Imagine you've got a friend... The only way he's ever thought of alcohol is that it's to get absolutely wasted to get drunk at parties. And that's what he thinks alcohol is used for. And you, you've got all this knowledge. You know, you know it's fine to drink alcohol. The way that you use it is fine. Um, and so you feel like, man, you should be able to drink around this friend. And this friend, he's, um, he's only recently become a Christian. And he's become convicted that the way he used alcohol was wrong. But there's you drinking alcohol in front of him. Your actions, your choice to do that in front of him, can embolden him to step back into using alcohol even though he thinks it's wrong. Whether or not it's right or wrong doesn't matter, okay? The, the, the point is, he's got a conviction. He feels like it's wrong and you're leading him or her to do something, to act against his conscience. Imagine it's a word that you choose to use. It's not a swear word, it's, it's a debatable word. And you think it's fine to say this word and your mate doesn't. And you use it in your language all the time and um, it sort of starts bleeding into their language as well. And they start using the word even though they think it's wrong. Don't do it, that's wrong. You're causing your brother or sister to act against their conscience. For me, um, I've I've got a weird one that's kind of pretty strange. Back in the mountains, you've got this big spectrum of people, right? You've got these commuters, they travel to work and they're like sophisticated and they look down their nose at everyone else. And then you've just got weird people who live in the mountains, they do strange stuff. And there was this hippie store in the mountains and it was full of weird hippie stuff. There were crystal balls in there, there were fortune cards, um, there were shrines, there there were actual idols with like 20 arms and stuff. And um, I used to go into the store to buy these these hippie pants. Um, Don't judge me. Um, And my conscience was strong. I knew that it was all rubbish, crystal balls, it's a load of rubbish, right? But... After I, this is like, I don't know how many years ago now, after reading this passage tonight, I decided I'm not going to go into that shop anymore 
because I don't want people to see me and think that any part of my life is actually even interested in a crystal ball or a fortune card, right? I can't stop what other people think as I go into that store. So I made the decision not to buy pants from there anymore. One of my mates, when I got married, he gave me a a Buddha statue. It's pretty funny. It was a joke, right? It's a little statue and it sits in this pebble garden and it it comes with a rake and you you can rake the the pebbles to calm down, right? It's a joke because marriage is stressful, okay? (laughs) Um... Ha ha, I laughed, I threw it in the bin. (laughs) Because I didn't want anyone to walk into my house and see a little Buddha and think that any part of my life is caught up with the notion that Buddha is worthy of having a place in my life. I know that Buddha, the notion of Buddha, um, is as much fiction as the next sci-fi movie. I know it's a load of rubbish. I don't believe in Buddha. But... I don't want people to walk into my house and think that some part of my life is. Because what if, they, what if they see that and they go, oh, Jasper's got an idol to Buddha um, and he thinks about this this way. Maybe I can think about it that way as well. Even though they think it's wrong and they think, oh, maybe it's okay to, to do crystal ball stuff because Jasper's in the hippie store. Um, no. I'll choose not to do those things and not to have those things in my house to stop people thinking that there's part of Christian living that's okay with having those things. It's wrong to lead people into going against their conscience. When people's conscience tells them that something's wrong, it's wrong to help them and lead them into acting against that. Because conscience is a, it's a slippery slope, right? The con- a conscience is it's the feeling inside you that you have, which is more intuitive than rational, that tells you what's right and wrong, good and bad. And often, conscience is shaped by your experience. So once you've gone against your conscience once, it becomes easier to go against it again. And conscience, it's... It's subjective, right? What I mean is that it, it, it's what you think is right or wrong, um, what, how you feel about an issue, right? It's subjective. And we see in this passage tonight that it's wrong to make someone go against what they feel is wrong. Whether it's actually wrong, like I said at the start, is beside the point. What matters is what the person thinks about it. Because if they think it's wrong and they do it anyway, their conscience is damaged, it's compromised, it's cauterized. We need to be careful about what we do and say around our Christian friends because it can cause them to join in doing something that they think is wrong. So should we do something... Even when we know it's fine, we've got all this knowledge, should we do it around friends who think it's wrong? Paul would say from this passage, don't do it. (laughs) Protect the conscience of your mates and don't lead him or her into doing something that they would think is sinful. Why? Because Jesus died to save that friend of yours and you are destroying their weak faith with the confidence that you're throwing around the place. 
So be careful. Don't lead people into going against their conscience. Give that brother or sister with a weak conscience some TLC. Don't knock them around with the knowledge that you have. Knowledge is the very thing that the Corinthians had that made them feel like they could do whatever they wanted. They could eat the food sacrificed at the idols. But Paul is coming down hard on them and saying, it's because of your lack of knowledge that you don't know that love comes first. And if you really had knowledge, you'd be serving your weak brothers and sisters in love, building them up, which is where we started, right? The difference between love and knowledge. Love is about building each other up. So we've got to build our brothers and sisters up. Does this mean that you've just got to, you've got to tread lightly around the place all the time? People's consciences are like eggshells and you've just got to not crunch them. <laughs> no, like, no. I think it's important to say that our conscience today is pretty messed up. We think a lot of things are right that are wrong and wrong that are right. Our conscience tells us the wrong thing sometimes. And I think particularly in our context, our conscience tells us the wrong things. And I think in a lot of cases, our conscience needs to change. That's why we love brothers and sisters with weak conscience because we're building them up, we're making them stronger, constructing them, making them more stable in what they do think is right and wrong. Setting firm foundations on Jesus so that what we build will remain. Our convictions, our moral compass, our conscience is shaped by the living word of God. Scripture is God-breathed, and the more you come to it, the more you'll find it correcting, rebuking, and training you, and that includes your conscience. We should be constantly shaping the way that our conscience works, bringing it in line with God's Word. And the way that we should treat God's Word is though it has its own gravitational pull that is pulling our conscience in line with it so that what we think is right and wrong agrees with what the Bible thinks is right and wrong. If you get the high value that God places on life in His Word... If you get that God knows you in the womb, that God, as you're being knitted together, loves you, and that he even predestines us before we were born, that his knowledge of us precedes our existence, your conscience will see the high value that God places on life and your conscience will tell you how to think about things like abortion. If you see in the Bible that it's wrong to steal, that it's wrong to take things that are not yours, your conscience will tell you that pirating movies is wrong. It's theft. It doesn't matter how big the industry is, it's still theft. And that's a good example, right, of conscience being able to slip and slide away from holding to the things that you think are right and wrong. Once you've pirated one movie, you end up with like, terabytes of hard drives of pirated movies it's a slippery slope 
And last week we, we touched on marriage. We didn't go super, super deep into it. But it's clear from that passage that married, I mean, sex is for marriage. And if your conscience is shaped by that, it will tell you that it's wrong to have sex outside of marriage. And the same thing applies once your conscience is wounded, once you act against your conscience, it becomes easier and easier to sleep around. Some things are wrong. I think there's an important distinction to make here. Some things are wrong that you think are right and those things you need to be corrected on. I'll just i say it again because I, I think it is really important. Some things are wrong that you think are right and they need to be corrected. You need to know where you stand on issues that the Bible speaks to. But some things are fine that you think are wrong. And in this case, the passage that we're looking at tonight, it says that we're not to lead each other into doing the things that we think are wrong. If we do that, if we lead each other into going against our conscience when we think something's wrong, how much does that destroy our ability to act in line with our conscience at all? For the brother or sister with a weak conscience, show them some love and don't trample over them with your knowledge. Serve them and put their needs before yours. Get alongside them and let the word of God shape their conscience. If you've got to give up eating meat, if you've got to stop drinking alcohol around your friends, if you've got to stop shopping at weird hippie stores, so be it. It's a small loss for the gain of protecting the conscience of the brother or sister that Jesus died for. We can do it, right? Because it's a small loss compared to the things that Jesus gave up to save us. That he came down out of heaven to become like us, to become obedient to death, even death on a cross. Let's imitate him. And humbly serve each other in love. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, for the model of your Son who's given up everything in order to save us and humbly serve, not to be served. We pray that our lives would be an imitation of that that we would love and serve each other, that our love would be shaped by your word, that we could bring each other into growing strong and confident in our faith, that we would build each other up and not use our knowledge to tear each other down. Um, Father, please give us the opportunities to practice loving and serving each other and that this would be a great example to the people around us of the love that you have for us. And pray these things all in your son's name. Amen.